Hello and welcome back to Grieving Well. I'm James Underwood and this is week three of our journey through C.S. Lewis's book in which he chronicles his journey through his grief from the loss of his wife. Last week we went through chapter one in which Lewis was at his rawest. He was at a time when he was so close to his wife's death. It had happened so recently and so as was mentioned in the description last week, he had no theological filter. He he wasn't really filtering through his thoughts. He wasn't making sure that he sounded refined. He wasn't double-checking that everything was okay. He was just like a fire hydrant. He was just pouring it out. And one of the things that we looked at last week is that kind of prayer, I would say it's not only good or not only okay, it's, it's good. You should do that. We see it especially in the Psalms. We see so many examples in which the psalmists pour out everything they are before God. Now, they do couch their uh, pouring out. They'll end with, but you, O oh God, you know what you're doing. We looked at, you know, the psalm last week where it's, but you, Lord, you're, you're holy, yet you are holy, right? So uh, Lewis, though, is at a point right now, last week, he was at a point where he uh, had not yet put any kind of filter. He had not yet put any kind of, uh, any type of thing on there that would make it shiny, that would make it polished, that would be presentable for church. Instead, we were reading just purely deep into a man's heart and what he was going through. This week, though, the very first sentence of uh, chapter 2, we're going to be going through the first half of chapter 2 this week. And in, here in the first sentence, he lets us know, he signals that now he's going to go back and consider the things he said. So first couple of sentences here from the very beginning of chapter 2, he says, for the first time, I have looked back and read these notes. They appall me. Okay, so what he has here, what we have here is reflection. This is one of the things, there's a lot of things, but this is one of the things that separates us from animals. We're able to not only think, but we're able to think about our thinking. We're able to, the fancy word there would be metacognition. We're able to, cognition is thinking, meta is above, so we're able to think from above. We're able to look down on our thoughts. And uh, that's what Lewis does here. He actually goes back, reflects on what he had said previously. So I want to start here from a broader spectrum and talk, I'm going to work my, in, my way into what this says about grief, but just in general for Christians, what a great thing. This is one of the reasons that so many people push for journaling of some kind, some type of thing where you can record your thoughts, where you can either write them down, uh, record audio of them, but so that you have some type of record so that you can look back and see, what did I say? What was it that I was thinking? What was it that I was praying? And just to be transparent with you, I'm not great at journaling. Um, I think it's an awesome thing, but it's one of those things I have to, a lot of people just do it naturally. For me, it's not very natural. I have to kind of make myself do it. So I've done that several times. And even recently, I was going back and looking at a, a prayer journal that I'd worked on about 15 years ago. And I'm going back and kind of like what Lewis did here, I'm going back and looking and I'm, there were, there were parts where I was like, oh man, James, what an idiot. You, <laughs> come on, man. What are you thinking? Why aren't you trusting God? Why, you know, don't you know that he's going to take care of you? And then there are other times where I'm going through there. I'm thinking, man, I wish I had that kind of faith now. What happened? So journaling or some type of way of reflecting on your thoughts, what a great thing to be able to do for any Christian. Uh, because again, you're, you're able to judge yourself a little bit more clearly when you're not in the moment. And that kind of cuts both ways. So there, there are two extremes here, and Satan is happy with either extreme. If we went to Lewis's screw tape letters, we would see that with the way that he writes that. 
But Satan would be happy with, with either of the two things that I'm about to describe here. He is happy either with you being too hard on yourself or being too easy on yourself. Either way, as long as you don't see things as they actually are, he's happy. But what reflection allows us to do is it allows us, because in the present moment, it's, it's difficult to do that. It's really difficult in the midst of the moment to see things as they actually are. Remove yourself even by five minutes. Remove yourself two days. Remove yourself a year. Go back and consider then, and you, you go, wait a second, I, I wasn't thinking clearly, right? So in the midst of the moment, though, we can so easily either say, ah, I'm not that bad, right? We can either diminish our sin so much that we don't even recognize it as sin, or we can go the other way, and this is too often the case, especially with grief, we can make our sin so large that even Jesus can't save us from it. I mean, imagine that, because in general, especially from our from our church and from our um from, from the way that we tend to think about theology, we're like, man, sin is a serious thing. And by the way, brothers and sisters, it is. It is a serious thing. And yet, if it becomes so big in our heads that even Jesus can't fix it, we're not, we're not thinking about it properly. Uh, it has to be manageable by Jesus. Too big for us, but not too big for Him. So now let me kind of hone in here a little bit with depression, with grief, as well as a specific thing is reflection is a great thing. And it's and it's something that almost always will happen in the grief process where you stop and you consider, wait a second, how am I thinking about things? Am I thinking about them clearly? And those moments, we need to jump on them. We need to be able to, to consider properly how things are going. I want to give an example, though, from, uh, from my own family. Uh, I'll give an example here with, uh, again, walking through, still walking through the grief process a bit myself, even, you know, quote, even though it's been four months, right, I'm supposed to be over it, but hey, my mom's death, it still affects me. But my stepdad, I remember when, uh, you know, the, it was probably just a very few days, it would have been about three or four days before she actually passed away. Uh, up until that point, my mom, uh, in fact, she was at home under hospice care. Uh, they would come out and visit her, but uh, she was at home until about 26 hours before her death. And we wanted so badly. That was her wish. That's what, you know, that's what anybody wants. And so my stepdad, I remember, though, there was finally a point where he was like, I just can't do it. And myself, uh, my wife, uh, we, we were in, we were there a lot to help, but we weren't there 24 hours a day like he was. And I remember him having a reflection moment, though, where, and this is what I mentioned when I'm talking about Satan, where he started to feel guilty, where he started to uh, look at the situation and say, ah, you know, I didn't take care of her enough, or I, I'm not doing enough for her, some kind of guilt like that. And I'm like, no, 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 you're, you're not looking at it properly. Man, you have loved her, you have cared for her, and yet, what, what is depression doing? What, is, what can grief do? It can lie to you. Well, one of my favorite quotes is that depression specifically, depression is a liar. It is. And Satan is the, is the author of that. Anything to make you view the world the wrong way. So I breathe that up to say to those, especially in the grieving process, one of the dangers can be that you, you can feel guilty that you haven't done enough. And uh, we see this in Lewis. A couple of paragraphs down, he says, I must think more about H, which again, that's, uh, that's his little symbol for her name, for joy. I must think more about her and less about myself. 
So we, we, I want to be careful here because I can't know for sure exactly what Lewis was thinking. But I'll, I'll point out, though, one of the one of the dangers in grief is that you can feel like I haven't done enough. I, I didn't do enough. I, uh, you know, things ultimately went in such a way that I couldn't stop this person's death. I couldn't stop again when we talk about grief, not just death, but I couldn't keep my kid from getting in prison. I couldn't stop this cancer diagnosis of a loved one. I couldn't keep I couldn't keep my job. It, it was ripped away from me, no matter how hard I tried. So one of the one of the problems with grief, or again one of the dangers of grief, is that we too easily blame ourselves. We too easily uh, take all the responsibility and believe that everything's our fault. Now we want to balance that. Sometimes there are you know things that we could have done better. But think about this. Where does Satan want you? Where does the Holy Spirit want you? The Holy Spirit wants you to move forward. The Holy Spirit wants you to grow, wants you to learn, wants you. He, he does not want you miserable. Now, if you're in the middle of sin, yeah, he wants you miserable. You need to be miserable about that. But if you are grieving the loss of a loved one, if you're grieving the loss of something in your life, for you to be miserable about it is not what the Holy Spirit wants. It's what Satan wants. It's what he desires for your life. He would love nothing more than for you to be stuck in the midst of that. The next item I would like to look at here and what Lewis says is uh, it's not completely connected to what we've been talking about so far, but it's something that I that I have to mention both for those who are in the midst of grief and those who are not, for those who are in the midst of troubles, in the midst of anxiety, and those who are trying to minister to those who are in those situations. He, he says a few paragraphs down, What pitiable can't to say, she will live forever in my memory. And he, he actually brings this up a few times, this type of thing, where he says, You know, I know people mean well, and they say things to me like, Well, you know, she's better off now. They say to me things like, Oh, you know, you, well, you still have her memories, you know, or, oh, at least she isn't hurting. And uh, I want to be careful here because I know a lot of well-meaning people, of course, I guess I just kind of gave away in the, in the name of what I just described there, but people mean well. And, and, and it can be really difficult when you're dealing with someone that's grieving because you don't know what to say. You're not sure exactly what words to use. But as Lewis talks about here, sometimes words and sentences, no matter how well they're meant, can really burn. They can really sting. Uh, an example that I would give here would be, you know, imagine being sunburned, that you've been out to the beach, uh, you have, uh, your shoulders are just burned to a crisp, and then maybe it's the next day, you're wearing a t-shirt, someone comes up to you, meaning well, and they slap you on the shoulder, like, you know, to say hello. Now, it doesn't, I mean, it does matter, but even though they meant well, even though they just meant to say hello, what they did hurts, okay? So, folks that are ministering to those who are in the midst of the grieving process, watch your words so carefully, even well-meaning words. And I mentioned this in a previous session, but sometimes the best thing you can do is just sit there. Sometimes the best thing you can do is just to simply offer, just to say, I'm here. You don't have to fix the situation. You don't have to make it better. Similarly, uh, folks that are in the grieving process, just know that you're not alone and that sometimes these well-meaning phrases, they can, they, they can hurt. Now, in the same paragraph, we get another big piece of the grieving process but also, it's a big piece of just the Christian life, and it's this 
similar to, again, Lewis is at a point now where he's reflecting, where he actually maybe has both the time and the mental energy to consider his previous statements, but he's also here able to, He's. you can see that he's seeing things a little more clearly around him. And by the way, folks that are grieving, that's okay. It's okay if you're even at a point where nothing looks right currently. That's okay. The point will come when you're able to do this, when you're able to look back, when you're able to consider things. Because what he does here is he starts to really grapple with the fact that she's gone. I mean, obviously, already he's been dealing with that. He, that's the reason he's journaling. I mean, I know it's a super obvious thing that uh, she's dead. And, but now he's starting to, it's starting to sink in a little more. It's becoming more concrete that she's gone. Because his, uh, you know, I read there the, the well-meaning statement of, she'll live forever in my memory. You know, he's quoting others. And then this is his response to that. Live? That's exactly what she won't do. You might as well think like the old Egyptians that you can keep the dead by embalming them. Will nothing persuade us that they're gone? What's left? And then he gives three answers here. A corpse, a memory, a ghost. And then he continues with uh, some incredible poetry. That uh, this, this corpse, this memory, this ghost, they're all mockeries or horrors, and they are simply three more ways of spelling the word dead. And so what we see here is... I'll start here specifically. I'll start on the inside this time. Let's, let's talk about the specific case of grief. He's coming to the realization, and, and I, I use that word intentionally, not just the knowledge, but the realization is becoming reality to him. It's starting to sink in that she's gone. And is there anything that's more visceral about the grieving process that's more real that's, than just this realization that they're gone? You know, early in the grieving process, or even sometimes later in the grieving process, it can be so. It's it's very natural and understandable for someone to kind of have a hope of maybe they'll be back. Now, I understand that that's not logical, but it still feels that way. It still very much emotionally feels that way. Now, working my way out from the grieving process, let's go to the broader um, category of Christian life in general. And it's this, it's this exact type of thing where we look around us and sometimes we come to the realization that something's gone or something is real that we didn't want to be real. Now, that can be a concrete thing. It can be something, again, in this, in this uh, grieving category, whether it be death, the loss of a job, uh, a terrible news that we've received, or it can be something a little more abstract. I'll give an example from my personal life. I remember, uh, so I was raised in church, and I was even baptized at a, at a pretty early age, but was not a Christian at all. Became a Christian, though. I came to Christ. He saved me. It was right before my 18th birthday. And I remember uh, that first year or two, honestly believing, there were so many sins that I dealt with, and honestly thinking, like, hey, when I get to be, when I get to be 30, 40 years old, I won't deal with these anymore. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know exactly where this idea came from, but I really honestly believed, hey, when I get older, I'll be a better Christian, right? Like, I mean, that's just it. And by the way, it makes sense, you know? Um, and yet what I found is as the years went by, I'm like, uh-oh, th this particular thing isn't getting any better. Or, hey, this one that used to be okay, man, now that's a struggle, and for me, this was a big realization. This was something that has been grieving to me. It has grieved me because I look at that and I, I'm so disgusted and I'm so 
sickened by the fact that I'm still sinning and I hate it. And and again, similar to grief, it's this reality that's in my life that I, I feel so helpless. I feel so um, out of control. And yet in the midst of that, and here I want to take that and springboard from, again, the broader Christian life, the, gen- the more specific grieving process and say, what an opportunity for the gospel. Because here's the deal, in the midst of whether we're talking about specific grief or the broader Christian life, these situations where there's a realization, where there's this understanding that what I'm facing, I can't deal with it. I don't know if I can move forward. I don't know if I can put a foot out of this bed. I don't know if I can go to work today. I don't know if I can breathe another breath. And in the midst of that, there's Christ. That's where Jesus is. Right. I mean, for for so, so much of my life, I had kind of this expectation. I was I don't know if it was taught, but it was definitely caught for me that Jesus is in. He's on the mountaintop. Jesus is at the summer camp. Big, you know, uh, big Jesus experience. Jesus is in the revival. And I've come to find that Jesus, in my experience, has much more often been in the bottom of the pit. He has been in the midst of sorrow, he has been in my sin. That right there, in that place where I feel like I've sorely disgraced him and upset him and disobeyed him, and I, I don't know that Satan could do a better job of beating me up. In the midst of that, man, Jesus is shining brightly. And that is in the places where he holds me. That is in the places where he lifts me up. That is in the places where he brings me hope and peace. And I'm going to say here specifically to the grieving process, it doesn't mean that I stop hurting. Or I definitely, I don't stop hurting completely. It doesn't mean that I don't miss that person. It doesn't mean that I'm all smiles and puppy dogs and rainbows and coloring books. But it does mean that I'm able to move forward, that I'm able to take that next step, that I'm able to, I may not be laughing ferociously, but I'm able to at least have some sense of joy in my heart because Christ is there. In fact, Lewis goes on to say a fair bit further down, he talks about how, you know, if all of his life, if all of his reality is a sphere and all of hers was a sphere, then at best they their time together were just two circles touching. And he says, and yet, this is what I long for. This is what I'm mourning for, what I'm homesick for, what I'm famished for. And then he goes on to say, I know that the thing I want is exactly the thing I can never get. And by just saying that, he's confessing reality. He is coming to, the again, this realization. He is coming to this realization of what is actually the truth. Uh, and it's not pretty, and it's not easy, and it's not fair. It's not, um, and I, I, I know again, people will often mean well, but we have to be careful to try to to try to um, salvage things by saying to one another, "Oh, well, you know, uh, maybe it's for this purpose, or maybe it's for that purpose." And it's like I don't care what purpose it's for. I just lost a loved one. Right now, I, I can't deal with that. Right now, I'm just like Lewis says here. The very thing I want is exactly the thing I can never get. And so my final point today will be, and if I, if I may be so bold, is to speak some hope into Lewis's situation here. 
Again, we're very early in the book. We're still at some processes here where Lewis has not completely put all this back together. He hasn't uh, polished it up for us. And so since we're in the midst of this, I do want to speak some gospel, speak some hopeful truth into the midst of what of what we've been talking about. I want us to look at 1 Thessalonians 4, and I'm going to go 13 to 18. So this is a fairly long paragraph. And uh, it's Paul, so of course it is. But uh, I want to read here a little bit about what he says to the Thessalonians because uh, what we can tell here is that they were they were struggling. They were struggling with the fact that believers had passed away and what's going to happen when Jesus comes back and all these people are gone. So this is what Paul says. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, which is to say those who are dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now notice there, he doesn't say, that you may not grieve at all, but he's saying don't grieve like other people do, people that don't have hope. People that don't have hope, their grief is a completely different kind. He says, no, you've got hope, though. That's he's According to Paul here, this, this hope should transform your grief. Verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. They're not gone. Obviously, they're not here, and the pain is still very real. But, they, we, but there will be this reunion. There, there is this sense that uh, they're not gone. Again, as he said, as those, as others who do not have hope, we're different. Verse sixteen: For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. This is glorious. This is joyful. This is the kind of imagery that would be associated with a general that's returning from a victorious battle. And the dead, and then Paul says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. They get, they, they're not held down by that grave. Obviously, again, the pain is still very real of what we are missing, but we need to know they are not forever gone. They are not held down forever. And then verses 17 and 18, he says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, and this is what Paul says, he says, encourage one another with these words. And so that's how I want to close today is to encourage you with those words. For those of you who are grieving, for those of you who have, are going through that process or will go through that process, I encourage you. I encourage you to know that our fellow believers, those who we have lost who are believers, we will see them again. Those are encouraging words for that. Obviously, there are still though things like lost jobs, uh, terrible situations, loved ones who are not believers. Those things are still so painful, and there is so much that's going on there. Yet, we do know here that this is some encouragement, and to know that encouragement. I pray that all is going well with you guys, and I look forward to meeting you next time where we'll finish chapter two uh, in our uh, out of the four chapters in A Greek Observed, and hope that everything goes well with you guys. 